Susan stood in her house coat at the doorway, watching her husband and twin sons leave the house. She had been up for some two and a half hours, but this was the first moment of solitude she had experienced. Once again, she was helping her husband prepare for a week-long business trip. Once again, she was helping her twin high school sons get ready for another day of school. Now, certainly her three men could fend for themselves, but there was something about mom-packed lunches that were far superior than anything those boys could get in the high school cafeteria. And certainly, uh, Dave could pack his own suitcase. But there was something about the way that she folded his shirts and pants so that the creases did not wrinkle. She had been preparing all morning long. She stood there, staring at the tan-colored SUV as it dropped over the horizon and out of sight. She turned back around and made her way towards the kitchen. All of a sudden, she saw two mounds of laundry that seemed to just spontaneously appear out of nowhere. And she thought to herself, before I tackle that mountain, I must have coffee. So she went to the kitchen and she sipped a freshly brewed pot of coffee. She stared out the kitchen window. She began to reminisce. She thought about how it used to be that she would put the rugrats in the back of the car and drive Dave to the airport herself. He had been traveling with the business for many, many years. It would drop him off on Monday. They would return to pick him up on Friday. And whenever he would come home, he would try to get home as early as possible. When he walked through the terminal and down those escalators, it was as if a victorious general was returning home from war to the thunderous applause of the crowd. She remembered how those evenings were filled with long conversations, family outings, and special evenings of romance. But that was yesteryear. That was a long time ago. Now, if ever Dave gets home early on Friday, it's to go golfing with the buddies. And the boys? Well, they're in high school. So a family evening is pretty much out the window. And those long nights of romance, well, the flames haven't flickered for a mighty long time. But she thought to herself, Dave's a good man. He's a good provider. He loves our boys. He's got a great job. He was their baseball coach growing up throughout the years. He's as active and involved in church as most men. Dave's a good guy, she thought to herself. Then she began to reheat her coffee in the microwave, and she thought to herself, I wish it was that easy to put warmth back in my marriage. Dave dropped the boys off at the high school, and off he went towards the airport terminal. He was on his iPhone. Dave was always on his iPhone. He was talking to some of the guys and preparing the Friday afternoon golf tournament. He was making his way through the corridor of the airport. He was on his cell phone, pulling his luggage behind him, and then he looked over and gave kind of a wink and a nod to his travel companion who was with him stride for stride. You see, she was employed by the company about a year ago. She used to work in marketing, but they had transferred her. Corporate thought it would be a good idea if she traveled with Dave once or twice a month. And Dave realized that she was 10 years his younger, but still, though, she was so easy to talk to. 
It seemed as if their conversations were deep. It covered more than just lunches and laundry. And Dave thought to himself, I'm beginning to have feelings that I haven't felt in a long time. I wonder if uh, she feels the same way. Dave began to look forward to these business trips. It didn't take long for him to develop feelings for this coworker. He began to compare her qualities to the qualities of his wife, Susan. And all the while, he convinced himself, I haven't done anything wrong. He would tell himself on more than one occasion, I haven't committed a moral failure, right? Today we continue our careful examination of the Sermon on the Mount. We find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. I think from this passage, Jesus has something to say to Dave. I think from this passage, Jesus has something to say to all of us who will listen. So with your Bible turned to Matthew chapter 5, beginning of verse 27, I ask for you to stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 5, let's begin at verse 27, we'll read through verse 32. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye calls you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand calls you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. Anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Heavenly Father, this morning, you have brought before us a tough passage. So this is my prayer. Think with my mind. Speak with my lips. Overtake my body. And help me to preach your word, which is true and timely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus begins this section of scripture by quoting for us the seventh commandment that's found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, which is rendered, you shall not commit adultery. Everyone on that Palestinian hillside would have given a hearty amen, for all throughout the ages they knew that ours is a God who values marriage. From the opening pages of the Bible, God defines what marriage truly is. He shows us the model of marriage when he puts together a man and a woman. I realize that throughout the Old Testament, there are examples of individuals, men, who have more than one wife. Let it be known that was never the standard. That was never the model. That was never the expectation. For the expectation is given for us in the very opening chapters of the first book of the great book of the great Bible, and it shows for us that God created Adam and Eve. May I need to remind you today that in the recent occurrences that have taken place in our culture, 
Let it be known that God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. I say that not to be trite. I say that not to be trivial. I say that to be true. Because nowhere in the Bible does God ever affirm same-sex marriage. In fact, the person who says that God says that's permissible has to do hermeneutical gymnastics in order to twist and contort the very word of God to say something that it was never intended to say. There's nowhere throughout the Bible that God endorses, that God permits same-sex marriage. Yet on Friday this past week, the highest court of our land, the Supreme Court, ruled five to four in favor of same-sex marriage across every state in this great union. I'll tell you exactly what happened that day. God was put on trial, and God was declared incompetent. And so the Supreme Court believed that they had to redefine what God had already established. And God has made himself very clear on this matter. Not only did he create Adam and Eve, male and female, he created them. He brought them together to live together in holy matrimony until death should take one of them apart. But elsewhere, the Lord says that homosexuality is an an abomination in the very sight of God. In fact, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of homosexual acts. And if we think that that's only how God acts in the Old Testament, all we have to do is turn to the page of the New Testament And we see that God has not changed his message, for in Romans chapter 1, it's the Apostle Paul who speaks the very word of God and says that God has handed the culture over to its own desires, where men exchange relations with women, which were natural, for unnatural relationships with other men, and women exchange relationships with men, which was natural, to unnatural relationships with other women, and they burned with passion for one another, and God gave them over to their depraved mind, and God gave them over to their shameful lust. I think what happened on Friday is that we as a nation, we instituted wickedness. God has already established marriage. He gave it the ultimate institution of a man and a woman, and any other display of that is a contortion of the truth. It's a distortion of the model. It goes against marriage by God's design. It is an institution of wickedness. I need to tell you up front that I am not homophobic. I have no fear of homosexuals. I do not fear the homosexual agenda. I am Theophobic. I fear God. I know him to be holy, and I fear that God himself just might be taking a step back from the American culture. I fear that God just might be having a hands-off approach to America. And so I am not homophobic, but I am theophobic. I am very Fearful of God in the healthiest sense because I know that my God is holy. And so, as I hear what has transpired over this past week, I think to myself, oh Lord, you are telling America, telling the American church what you told the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. When the Lord said to the church, you are lukewarm, 
I wish you were either hot or cold. I wish you either had a therapeutic ministry or a refreshing ministry. I wish you were hot or cold, but you are neither. You are lukewarm. And because of that, you're making me sick to my stomach so that I will spew you out of my mouth. Oh, my friends, I fear that God has placed us on a crash collision course with the porcelain throne of God where God will spew the American church out of his mouth simply because what was right we've now called wrong what was wrong we've now called right and we have permitted that which was promiscuous and I fear that God has stepped back that God just might throw his hands up in despair and God just might vomit and get sick in his stomach and spew the American church but there is hope there is hope What God says consistently throughout his word, what God says to the church at Laodicea is what God says today. There is a remedy. God only has one remedy, and that's fine because only one remedy is needed. The remedy is repentance. What Jesus said to every church in the seven churches of the, of the, of the letters of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, what he said from Genesis to Revelation, consistently all throughout the book, wherever there is disobedience, the remedy is repentance, where we change our mind and turn our stride, where we turn away from that which is wicked, walk towards that which is holy, we say no to sin and yes to the Savior, there is turning, there is trusting, there is receiving, there is repenting. Oh, my friends, what the church needs today, what America America needs today is just a little bit of R&R. I'm not talking about rest and relaxation. I'm talking about receiving and repenting, where we say to God, you're right. You're not incompetent. In fact, you're very omnipotent. You are omniscient. You are all-knowing. You are everywhere. You know exactly what is right. You know exactly what is wrong. We don't have to uh, bend you to our desires. We bend our desires unto you. So Jesus comes along, and he says to those who will listen, hey, God values marriage. He's already set the definition. He's already set the table. It is a man and a woman forever. But Jesus said on that day, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. There would have been a hearty amen. They realized the Mosaic covenant, which stated in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, that if a man sleeps With another man's wife, both that man and that woman must be put to death. And then the rationale is given in the very next line. For you must purge Israel from this evil. So Jesus reminds the church that day and this day that our God is a holy God. He cannot tolerate Dingy, despicable disobedience. Jesus then raises the bar of commitment. He internalizes that which is external. He intensifies the understanding of holiness. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. If you're not careful, if you haven't committed the physical act of adultery, you just might look down on other brothers and sisters, other individuals who've had a moral mishap. You may think yourself as more spiritual. You may think yourself as somehow better. But need I remind you that all of us are made out of the same stuff. There's no one who has an anti-adultery genetic makeup. All of us are made out of the same material. 
So Jesus issues a word of caution and a word of conviction when he says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say unto you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Once again, Jesus intensifies that which is external. That holiness is not from the outside in. Holiness is from the inside out. So anyone who looks, that word looks, is a present participle, which implies a continuous action. It's not just a glance, it's a gaze. Anyone who gazes at a woman lustfully. We can turn the genders around. Any woman who gazes at a man lustfully, it's appropriate. I mean, it's, the, the understanding is the same. Um, and Jesus says any man who gazes at a woman lustfully, any woman who gazes at a man lustfully has already committed adultery with that person in his or her art. For Jesus to say lustfully is the word that means to have a craving and a desire for something which is forbidden. To have a craving and a desire for that which is forbidden. So Jesus says, anyone who gazes at a person that is forbidden, you've already committed adultery with that individual. I've heard more than one spouse say to her husband, well, if you think it, you might as well do it. Because Jesus said, if you think it, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Yes. So what I want to say to that person, not only is that bad theology, that's just stupid. (laughs) That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying, if you think it, you might as well do it. What he is saying is that the source of adultery is not an erotic act. The source of adultery is an erroneous thought. What he's saying is that adultery begins in the head long before it begins in the bed. By the time you get to the bed, you've already bypassed numerous stop signs and roadblocks. You lived as if they did not exist. Jesus is saying that adultery begins in the head long before you ever wind up in bed with someone other than your spouse. It was John MacArthur who said, it is not um, looking lustfully that leads to sin in the heart. It is sin in the heart that leads to looking lustfully. It's a problem from the inside out, not the outside in. So Jesus intensifies holiness. He raises the bar of commitment. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, if you even begin to replay things, imagine things across the screen of your mind, you're going down a path of promiscuity. So in the words of Fred Stoker, the author of the book that's entitled Every Man's Battle, it was such a good bestseller that he thought it'd be a great idea to write every woman's battle. I suspect that every man's battle may be quite similar to every woman's battle. In the book that's entitled Every Man's Battle, he says one of the ways you battle the glancing and the gazing is by bouncing away. Literally, you train your eyes to bounce away. It is no sin for your eyes to fall upon something that is inappropriate. After all, we live in a sex-charged society. It seems as if everywhere we turn, there is some image that's inappropriate. You drive down the interstate, it's on the billboard. You turn on the television, it's in the commercial. 
you watch the movies, it's right there. Uh, you go through the grocery line, it's on the cover of every magazine article. I don't know about you, but if I have to go through the checkout line, it's almost as if I just have to close my eyes and just hope that my groceries make it to the conveyor belt because I've just gotta, I've just gotta kinda keep going and moving it and I hope that I get out with what I brought in. I, I don't know, but that's just how, because everywhere you look, there's images of inappropriateness, promiscuity. So it's not so much a sin if your eyes fall on something that's inappropriate. It's what you do after the glance or the gaze that determines the level of your character. So Fred Stoker says, bounce away. That when your eyes fall on something inappropriate, you train yourself just to bounce away to something else. It falls, bounce away. It falls over here, bounce away. I try to teach this to my children, especially to my son. And uh, my son, who's 10 years old, he understands what is promiscuous and what is permissible. Even at the age of 10, he understands it. The reason I know this is because a couple years ago, uh, we were walking through uh, the Galleria Mall and we came across uh, Victoria's Secret. Um, I don't know the secret that Victoria has, (laughs) but it seems to me that she doesn't hide very much. (laughs) So my son and I are walking through the Galleria Mall and and we come across Victoria's Secret and all their advertisements are larger than life and they're plastered in the window. And my son, Nathan, pokes me and says, hey, dad, look. I'm like, yeah. I look back at him and I promise you, I'm not exaggerating. His eyes are like yo-yos, up and down, 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 up and down. He goes, dad, I'm bouncing away, I'm bouncing away, I'm bouncing away, I'm bouncing away. I told my 10-year-old son, man, you got it. That's it. Because he knows that which is promiscuous and that which is permissible. Already at the young age, he understands. I wish that David would have taken the advice of my 10-year-old son. For in the spring of the year when most kings go to war, David went out on the balcony of his palace and he looked over the city and he saw a woman taking a bath. Never know the scripture to exaggerate, says of that woman, she was very beautiful. She must have been a knockout. Instead of bouncing away, David focuses his glance into a gaze. He burns with passion for this woman. He calls his servant over, asks for her identity. The servant says, that's Bathsheba. She's married, and she's married to Uriah, one of your mighty men. What the servant was trying to tell the King David was, she's off limits. She is forbidden for you because not only is she married, but she's married to one of your finest soldiers. So King, you better back off. But David threw caution to the wind. He called for this woman. They had a night of erotic pleasure. A few months later, he received a letter that she was pregnant. And so this one named David was guilty of lust and lying and adultery. He was also guilty of being an accomplice to murder. He put Uriah in the front of the line where the fighting is fiercest and Uriah was struck dead. I wish that David would have simply bounced away. Had David bounced away, none of that would have happened. Had he bounced away, turned away, walked away, none of that would have taken place. I wish that David would have listened to Job. Job says in chapter 31 verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I may not look at a woman lustfully. I wish that David just would have remembered the story of Joseph. 
Joseph, when he was approached by Mrs. Potiphar, not only bounced away, but he ran away. He ran with such force, he came out of his shirt. The apostle Paul, when he was writing that very promiscuous church called Corinth, he says to them, flee sexual immorality. Run from it, bounce away from it. My friends, do I really need to tell you that sensuality is one of the primary blind spots in America? It's one of our major blind spots. We have contorted, we have twisted the, this beautiful institution called marriage. We have contorted and twisted our understanding of sexuality, of sexual identity, of what is inbounds, of what is out of bounds, what is right, what is wrong. We have so contorted it and twisted it. We've taken something which was so beautiful, which is so precious, which is so valuable. We've taken it and we've just really turned it upside down, inside out, and contorted it to our own pleasure. And if we're not careful, we don't realize the blind spots that are all around us. And one of the primary blind spots in America is sensuality. So that even in the church, a congregation of this size, you just might have somebody who's a believer in Christ struggling with pornography. You just might have somebody who is questioning sexual identity, sexual orientation. You just may have somebody who is thinking about adultery, even making plans of how it could take place. You may even have somebody who is stuck in the mire of dingy disobedience, even in a church this size. And sometimes what just might happen is that people can live their life throughout the week and Monday through Friday they can be hooked on pornography and Saturday they can hook up with a complete stranger or or even a friend with benefits. And then they can come to church Sunday morning as if they have not lived any inconsistency in their life. And all my friends, we have contorted this so that Jesus says, you must be passionate about purity and you've got to be ruthless about righteousness. You've got to be passionate about purity and ruthless about righteousness. Did you hear what else Jesus said? Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, I don't know any pirate Christians. I don't know anybody who walks around with an eye patch because they've gouged out their eyes. I don't know anybody who walks around because they've lopped off their arm or their hand because they've taken the words of Jesus literally. But at the very least, what Jesus is saying is that you've got to be passionate about purity and you've got to be ruthless about righteousness. At the very least, my friend, you've got to have an accountability partner. What that simply means is you've got to have somebody in your life that you can't lie to. Because we're conniving and we're crafty. And we can lie to each other every day of the week and twice on Sunday. You have a problem with this? No, it's good. You have an issue this past week? No, man, I'm great. We lie through our teeth. The church is made up of a bunch of liars. Can I get an Amen. That's right, because we connive and we uh, propel an image of who we ought to be, maybe even what we want to be, but far from what we literally are. And at the very least, my friend, you need somebody that you can't lie to. You need somebody who can hold you to the fire, who can, who can tell when you're telling the truth or tell them a lie. You need to pour yourself into prayer and Bible study. You need to surround yourself with people who make much of Jesus and can help lift up the name of Christ. 
And you know what? You can have an accountability partner. You can have a quiet time. You can pray. You can come to church. You can even lead in church. But can I ultimately tell you, you have the greatest power at your disposal because you have the risen Christ living inside of you. The Jesus that flung the stars into space is in you. The Jesus that taught the birds how to fly is in you. The Jesus who raised an army out of a valley of dry bones is in you. The Jesus who preserved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace is in you. The Jesus who showed up and shut up the mouths of the lions for Daniel is in you. The Jesus who preserved Jonah in the smelly belly of the fish is in you. The Jesus who was raised on the third day is in you. The Jesus who awakens inside of you the understanding of your need for salvation and secures and seals your holiness in the person of the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. That person is in you so that greater is he who is in you than he that's in the world. You have the greatest power at your disposal because Jesus resides within you and Jesus is not dead. He's very much alive and the power that raised him from the dead is the power that lives in and through you. So you have Jesus at your disposal. So Jesus says, I need you to be passionate about purity and righteous and um, ruthless about righteousness. So some of us, we just need to get rid of the iPhones. Did you know, a study has been done, it is possible to actually live without your iPhone. (laughs) Some of you need to chuck it because it trips you up all the time. Some of you just need to get rid of the iPhone. Some of you need to bring the computer out of the darkness into the light, put it in the, right in the middle of the family room. Some of you need to cancel some of the movie channels. Some of you just need to be honest before the Lord and before a friend you can't lie to. You need to be ruthless about righteousness. Well, Jesus continued. He said, it's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Moses had issued a certificate of divorce saying anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate. The reason this was given, God says, is because of the hardness of heart of man. It was really given to prevent divorce. It was given to cause people to stop and think about it. But that which was given to prevent divorce in the days of Jesus was given to permit divorce. Jesus saw it as a license for lust. The people who thought themselves to be righteous, they said, well, I cannot commit adultery, so I will divorce my existing wife and I'll go marry that cute hot thing until I get tired of her and then I can divorce her and then go marry someone else. And so Jesus saw it not as a preventative towards divorce, but it was a permission of divorce. It's well been documented that there were some people in the days of Jesus that divorced their spouse simply because she burnt the toast at breakfast. Divorced spouse because she said something that he perceived was an embarrassment in front of his friends. So in the days of the first century, a divorce could happen at anything. You make a mistake at breakfast, you'd be divorced by lunch. I mean... And Jesus says that this no-fault divorce, this is killing the church. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, anyone who has a divorce must give a certificate of divorce, but I tell you, don't do it. Anyone who divorces his spouse except for marital unfaithfulness then causes her to be an adulteress. And then if she goes along and marries somebody else, then she commits adultery. So Jesus says, what you have 
in your marriage is something that is sacred. What you have in your marriage is something that is holy unto the Lord. So uh, don't just throw it away. Don't just kick your spouse to the curb. Do you realize that every time a Christian gets a divorce, it says to the watching world, grace doesn't work? Every time a Christian couple gets a divorce, it says to the watching world, grace doesn't work. And Jesus says, listen, if you're here today and you're thinking about divorce, don't do it. Don't do it. I mean, I know that there are days when marriage is fun and exciting and exhilarating, right? And then there are other days, right? It's not as fun, it's not as exciting, it's not as exhilarating. Some of you say, you know, I've never, I've never thought about divorce, but I sure have contemplated murder. <laughs> because you know that some days are tough. And Jesus says, don't just kick your spouse to the curb because you don't like him anymore, because you don't get along, because he said, she said. Jesus does give the caveat that except for marital unfaithfulness. Now, marital unfaithfulness, the word is a Greek word named pornea. Pornea is where we get the English derivative pornography. Pornea is a broad term that can mean any type of sexual sin. It can mean homosexual sin. It can mean heterosexual sin. It can mean fornication. It can mean adultery. It can mean bestiality. It can mean because of pornography. It's a host of things that it can mean. And Jesus says in those cases, when you're hurt so to the core, it is permissible for you to get a divorce. But never does Jesus say it is mandatory. I'm always amazed at this. Jesus says it's permissible in cases of marital infidelity, but it's never mandatory. Why is it never mandatory? Because God says, even though you're married to a frail, fragile idiot, that idiot is a creation of God. And so that husband and that wife swim in the sea of grace and God is able to mend that which is really, really, really hurt you. And God is able to do this. It gets to the point in the prophets that, that the prophet Malachi says, God hates divorce. Why does God hate divorce? He hates divorce because he values marriage so much. Marriage by his design. Marriage as a man and a woman for life. And there are some Christian people that will say to you and they'll try to give you advice and they'll say that your children will be okay. Children of divorce are not okay. I sit and talk to adults tell me your story. And oftentimes, one of the first things out of their mouth when I was seven years old, my mom and dad got a divorce. And then they begin to tell me the path that they followed. So good Christian people will tell you if you're contemplating a divorce, they'll say, hey, your children are resilient. Your children will bounce back. Your children will be okay. And I want to tell you as your loving pastor, no, children of divorce are not okay. Because God loves the family. We call it traditional family. He just calls it his holy family. God loves family, husbands and wives and children. And he wants us to stay together. Listen, God is not keeping something from us. God is not withholding fun from us. God is setting the table. He said, I want you to live like this for your own good. So we've got to get to the point where we value fellowship with God more than a five-second glance. We've got to get to the point where communion with Christ is greater than 20 minutes of ecstasy. We've got to get to the point where we love God more than our own sinful, selfish pleasures. What we ultimately have to do this morning is we have to ask ourselves, 
do we believe that Jesus knows what he's talking about when he's describing the good life? Or do we think we have a better understanding of the good life? Because humans live their life in such a way that's so worldly, so sinful, so selfish, and if you ask them, why are you doing that? They'll say, I'm trying to have the good life. I'm trying to have fun. I'm trying to fill the hole in my life. I'm trying to have fun. And you say to them, but listen, Jesus tells us how we can be whole. Jesus shows us how we can be holy and happy in his sight. And Jesus' understanding of the good life has to be far greater than our understanding of the good life. And today we have to get to the question, do we believe Jesus? Do we believe that his description is better than our description? Do we believe that his good life is better than our good life? So Jesus says, listen, I want you to be passionate about purity. I want you to be ruthless about righteousness. And I want you to value marriage as much as God values marriage. So this morning you're here. And can I tell you, if you're thinking about a divorce, don't do it. Don't do it. The statistics tell me that in the church is the same as outside the church. For every six marriages, there are three divorces. So in a crowd this size, if you're thinking about divorce, don't do it. If you have an inappropriate relationship, break that relationship today. Today. Be ruthless about it. If you're divorced for unbiblical reasons and your former spouse is not married, then you have one of two options. Either you pray to the Lord by the power of the Spirit that he will reconcile you to your former spouse. At this time, you're thinking to yourself, there's a snowball's chance that's gonna happen. But I'm telling you, God is able. God is able. Your one option is to be reconciled to your former spouse. Your second option is to stay in the state you are of singleness. If you have been divorced for unbiblical reasons and now you're on your second marriage or now you're on your third marriage or maybe your fourth marriage, and that current, that current spouse is seated beside you, Jesus is not telling you that after you hear this sermon this morning, you go down to the courthouse and you get a certificate of divorce. He's not saying that. He's also not saying you need to deprive your current spouse. He's not saying that either. What he's saying is you value who you are with right now. You make this as holy as you possibly can. Jesus wants us to be passionate about purity and ruthless about righteousness. There is a fountain that's filled with blood and is drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood and they can lose all their guilty stains. And the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. This morning I ask you, I wonder what happened to Dave on his business trip. Do you wonder? You wonder how it turned out? I don't know. It's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? But this much I'll tell you, you change a few of those details and his story is your story. So you tell me, how does it turn out? Jesus says, be passionate about purity. Be ruthless about righteousness to the glory of God. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Lord, even in this very room, there are people who are struggling with sexual sin and sexual orientation. They're struggling with issues of pornography. They're struggling with issues of potential divorce. They're struggling with... Um, 
divorces for unbiblical reasons. And Lord, today you have given us a truckload of teaching. And Lord, on this day we pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, will apply grace where grace is needed, that you will apply truth where truth is needed, that you will apply knowledge where knowledge is needed. Lord, if there's anyone here who is a sinner who has never accepted Christ as Savior, today I pray for their salvation. Lord, if there's someone here who needs to join this church, I pray that today will be the day they come part of this faith family. If there's somebody here who's struggling, I pray that you give them the strength to come and to pray at the altar. Maybe they're not praying for themselves. Maybe they're praying for a friend. Maybe they're praying for their son or their daughter. Maybe they're praying for their future spouse. Maybe they're praying for somebody they don't even know. Lord, I pray that you give us power to come and kneel here at the altar and pray. I know that after a sermon like this, it would take an atomic bomb to make people move. But Lord, I I pray that on this day, we're so real, so transparent before you that we'll come and fall on our faces as a spiritual beggar and say, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on us. You move and we'll respond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.